When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Soccer Show Weekend Review! Arsenal didn't play, but they ended the weekend dejected as they dropped to second place, just as we all expected. The title race wasn't the only thing making hands clammy as Jurgen Klopp got so enraged that he pulled a hammy. There was a thriller Anfield and Spurs <laughs> might have been able to win it if we stopped counting goals in the first 15 minutes. Things were pretty jubilant around the Stadio Diego Maradona, which was supposed to have a massive celebration put upon her. But Napoli blew the chance to win the title before May and will have to keep waiting for a few more days. And Dortmund had the chance to go four points clear, but they blew it in Bochum. Oh dear, oh dear. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who hopefully enjoyed his weekend more than Arsenal and Dortmund fans, Taylor Rockwell. Watcher. I definitely did. Uh, I, am I supposed to respond watcher to that? I forget how it works with your, with your slangs. But oh. I had a lovely weekend. Uh, a nice relaxing weekend. I did a ton of manual labor on Friday and then I mostly relaxed yesterday, which, which was a good time. Uh, and Manchester United won. So cherry on top. Cherry on top. I used to. There was a, a video editor at Kick TV, which was a thing I did back in the day. Taylor, who came, he was, um, he was from Minnesota, and he said, "I just learned this um, uh, British expression, watcher. What does it mean?" And I was like, "I don't know. I can't explain it. It's just like a how are you? I didn't know anything I've, about it. I've only ever heard it in Harry Potter. That's the. Oh. Only, I think they say it to each other a few times. That's the only place I've ever heard it before. Until this moment, when Ryan Bailey brought it back. Maybe it's what you up to. I'm not sure. We should look into it anyway. Uh, joining yeah, what, us. What, what, what you're up to? Yeah, that makes sense. Watcher. Yeah. Watcher. Yeah. Watcher. It sounds very like a Victorian policeman would say it to you. <laughs> yes, um, amongst other things that are less repeatable that a Victorian policeman would probably say. Indeed. Well, joining us today, today, a man who'd never take his shot off to celebrate a goal that didn't end up having any effect on the final <laughs> result. Joe Lowry, are you the anti-Richarlison? Hello. I might be. I might be, Ryan. I also be tempted to take my shirt off to reveal an even worse tattoo than the one that he has. <laughs> so I didn't see this game live, Spurs, Spurs, Liverpool, but I see Graham in the slack typing the Richarlison back tattoo is out. And in that moment, I knew that, that something crazy had gone on. I also was in another group chat that was sort of going off about this game. So I knew that this one was going to be wild. And then I actually watched it and was somehow still impressed with how wild it was. Ryan, to go all the way back to what you said initially. Yeah, ultimately, I'm probably not ripping the shirt off to reveal a really bad tattoo. Good, good. Keep it up, uh, keep it up, Joe. Keep it up. And joining us, Joe, a man who's going to Naples in a couple of weeks' time, maybe when Napoli still haven't won the title yet. Graham Ruthven, how long are they going to drag this thing out? Uh, I think a lot, a lot of Napoli fans expect their team to drag this out quite a lot. It seems to be in sort of the DNA of, of Napoli as a team to do that sort of thing. They can still win it on Tuesday night away to Udinese. 
Udin, I think that's how you pronounce that. Is, is, is that Ryan? You're the Italian, the the, the resident Italian amongst no, it's us. It's pronounced Ud- Napoli. Go on. <laughs> the Ud- Udin, where Udinese play, I believe, is the furthest away trip for Napoli in Serie. A. So it's fitting for them that that might be where they finally win the scudetto. If I'm not mistaken, Graham, they could also win it on the Tuesday when they're not playing. They could do a Leicester winning the title all around Jamie Vardy's house. Napoli's still going to, or Naples, excuse me, is still going to have a party. Yeah. They're, 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 they're ready to go. That place, is, that place might not be standing when I visit in two weeks' time. I mean, it's, it was barely standing to start with, to be Hey-o. honest, Graham. But uh, I, I, judging by the images and videos I've seen, they still just had a big party. Yeah, so, I was thinking yeah. that. These people, there's no way these people are just going to go back into their, <laughs> their homes. They're going to put away the flares. They're going to put away the Maradona banners. No, they just had a party because they basically won it anyway. Indeed. More on that a little later in the show, but let's kick off the show with the aforementioned Richarlison removing his shirt and a bit more accoutrement around that incident in Liverpool 4, Spurs 3, Liverpool 3-0 up after 15 minutes. Bit of a a shell shock for Tottenham, who've had recent experience of going down by several goals uh, in the opening minutes of a game, of course, uh, with their game last week as well. The fourth consecutive win for Liverpool this was... Spurs fans already spotted Taylor leaving the stadium after 15 minutes, which in hindsight was a bit too soon because there was an honourable finish, if you could call it that, for Tottenham with um, Richarlison um, getting the goal to make it 3-3 late on. 99 seconds later, Diego Jota getting the 4-3 winner. I don't condone leaving early. I really don't. That said, if you did leave at 3-0 down, they probably don't regret it right because even like you'd feel like they'd regret it if the comeback had happened if if Tottenham had managed to hold on to the draw or even get a win but for that comeback to occur the way it did and then for Liverpool to go on and score the winner with Tottenham sort of shooting themselves in the foot or more specifically Lucas Mora doing so I feel like those people who left early probably just ended up enjoying their day a little bit more even if then the final result probably made them just as mad as it would have to begin with I mean it's a lot it's it's like what Four hours to get from London to Liverpool, Graham, I'm thinking, around that time. Yeah, but if you leave early, do you get your ticket refunded by Daniel Levy? So these Spurs fans are just getting trips to the north of England every single weekend, courtesy of uh, Tottenham Hotspur. <sighs> if you stay the full 90 minutes, might Spurs argue, well, seven goals? You had your you had your money's worth there, no refund for you. I Is mean, that what sparked the comeback? Is it, they were like, we cannot afford to buy all these people <laughs> tickets again. We've got to score some goals, fellas. Yeah, that's why Richarlison scored. Daniel Levy <laughs> went down to him at halftime and said, look, we're going to have to sell you if you don't do something about this. And then he scored and they still lost. And then yeah. he said, we're still going to have to sell you probably. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Joe, on the actual sporting side of things, why Tottenham keep doing this? <laughs> Ryan, saving the best questions for me. Thank you so much. Um, so first of all, if I had the answer to this question, the full answer, I would be doing a very different job. I, I thought in this game... Tottenham came out and looked a bit shell-shocked at how precise Liverpool were. And it was a difficult one for me to tell like what is bad defending from Tottenham and what is really precise, quick attacking mm-hmm. play from Liverpool. And, and ultimately, I think there was a little bit of both, right? The first goal for Liverpool in this game is a great ball in from Trent Alexander-Arnold, occupying you know mostly those same spaces that he's occupied throughout the Jurgen Klopp era, but... Now he's doing that maybe a bit more often and having license to do that more consistently. But he plays a lovely outswinging ball that really only he and, and Kevin De Bruyne hit with that level of accuracy in the world to find Curtis Jones towards the back post. Tottenham don't do a good job of defending him. Then minutes later, it's it's Luis Diaz who's back and scoring, and, and that's a fantastic storyline right now in the Premier League. They blink and it's 2-0. 
I, I think that was a lot of Liverpool being really, really good. Tottenham not quite being there mentally, maybe, but the, the one that really hurt for Tottenham in this game, the one that you look at and think, like, what is going on there? It's the third goal. Well, the fourth goal as well, but the third yeah. goal in the opening <laughs> stages of this game. I mean, Christian Romero sliding in on Cody Gakpo with absolutely no no idea of, of where he is or why that's a bad idea. Like, it's a penalty kick 11 times out of 10. There's no defensive awareness And how many times have we seen this from Romero over and over again. And for me, that was the goal more than either of the first two, even though, you know, the onslaughts really already started at that point. That was the moment that I thought, man, maybe Antonio Conte was right. Like, maybe this team is broken. Maybe you can't do anything with this team. And I think later in this match, that was proven to be wrong as they wrestle it back and equalize, and we we got some vintage performances from some of Tottenham's biggest players. But, man, like they just didn't look fully ready to go, or at least after they've been hit in the mouth, they certainly didn't look ready to respond. Counterpoint. Nah, they're broken. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I say that flippantly, but I think I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is going on with Spurs, why this keeps happening or has happened in multiple games that they concede so many so quickly. And why they look so uninspired, but then can have the fight back that they do in this game. And I think it it relates in my mind to some of the stories when when uh, players are starting to get really frustrated with Conte. And there's this idea that even since basically since Pochettino, they haven't done enough on the attacking side to develop their attacking game plan. That it's been uh, since Pochettino be defensive, we have to have a really strong defensive game plan, and then the attack will handle itself because we're going to play on the break and we have world-class attackers. And by all accounts, or at least some accounts, a lot of those attacks are still Pochettino-oriented or the systems that he wanted them to attack through, and that's been the case through Antonio Conte. And so... To some extent, I look at this game and this Spurs team, and I think they're a team that can attack on muscle memory, but defend individually. And so many of these mistakes, even the overall approach in the first few minutes was half the team pressing, half the team sitting off with huge gaps in between. I think Pedro Porro just switching off and forgetting that maybe there's somebody at the back post who might score a goal. Romero, as you mentioned, Joe, going in individually. It's not a team playing defense. It's a series of individuals sort of all trying to put out fires as they pop up. And sometimes that can work. But when you come up against a team like Liverpool, even a Liverpool team that aren't at their full peak the way they've been in seasons past, I think they're still going to cause problems. Yeah. Uh, Alan Shearer pointed out on Match of the Day that issue with Spurs sending three players uh, forward into the high press, but the midfield then backing off and that making it just so easy for Liverpool to play through them and get into those midfield areas where Trent Alexander-Arnold in particular could play those those passes in behind, whether that's across to the back post for the first goal. There was also a couple of times he was playing lovely passes out to the to the channels. I think it was Cody Gakpo had a, blo- a blocked shot as well that might have been another goal. Um, so there was definitely a disconnect off the ball with how Spurs were playing. Spurs were playing. Then after the, the third Liverpool goal, um, Ryan Mason kind of, tweak things not dramatically but he they went into this midfield three and then a front two and that's when the script was kind of flipped and it started to be the dynamic was changed and it was the other way around for Spurs where they were the ones that had the extra body in midfield and they were the ones that had runners in behind on the counter-attack and you had Son and Kane doing the thing that Son and Kane have done a number of times for the, over the last few seasons and I don't want to be you know king, king hindsight about this but I, I can't understand why any Spurs manager wouldn't set your team up in that 3-5-2 shape at the moment because at a, a pretty reductive level it masks a lot of their flaws and um, certainly in defense and midfield some of their flaws anyway and then it gets the best out of their two their two best players in Kane and Son so yeah it flipped the script for Spurs and, and Liverpool 
struggled with how easily Spurs were were finding space after that third goal. But those those opening twenty minutes were it was just more of the same for Spurs. And at that point, I fully expect this was going to be another six or seven nil defeat for them. I I just can't understand. I can't understand a lot of things going around with Tottenham right now. But did you all see the quote from Ryan Mason after the game? Interim manager Ryan Mason, who said they were the better team by a country mile. I believe that was a quote by a country mile in this game. I, I don't understand how you watch this match in any way. And I know that maybe you, you take out the first 15 minutes and it does swing the other direction. But I can't imagine watching this game, watching some of the, the disjointed defending that you guys have done a really good job of breaking down, watching the quality that Liverpool have on the ball, being reminded of how good this Liverpool team can be, and seeing how passive and poor you look for large stretches of the game. I, I just don't get it. Like, Taylor, you're talking about Tottenham being broken. I think that might extend longer or, or larger into bigger mm-hmm. avenues than just the players. I I just have a lot of questions about Spurs from this game. I, I also know um, the, the Discord has been plugging their ears for large stretches of time yep. because there are a lot of Tottenham fans in the Discord, and I want to apologize to them. Um, counterpoint, your team should just be better. So yeah. that's what I, I don't think I don't think you're the one who well, needs to apologize, Joe. Well, Klopp basically made that point after the match. Klopp was spiky in this game, by yes, the way. So he celebrates was. in the face of the the fourth official, pulls his hamstring, as Ryan mentioned in, in his intro. But then also afterwards comes out with some comments about Paul Tierney, the referee, essentially suggesting that Tierney has an agenda against Liverpool. I think the FA and the Premier League will come down on Klopp pretty hard on that. But then also very prickly towards Ryan Mason, who is essentially just a son-in-law. Like, how can you get angry with Ryan Mason? He basically said, <laughs> I, I Spurs, like I Spurs like should just play better, was his point. It, like, well, right, He was told that Ryan Mason was complaining about yeah. the Jota non-red card call, right, Taylor? That was that was yeah. what happened. Mm-hmm. And so he hits back with, well, maybe Spurs should just play better. Well, he, he hits back first with, like, well, now I'm told Oliver Skip should have had a red card. Did Ryan Mason talk about how Oliver Skip should have had a red card? Oh, he didn't? Well, maybe he should focus on his team. Like, I thought that was a pretty good burn of, like, well, we also uh, feel aggrieved that you all didn't get a red card, uh, but I'm not here talking. He does a very good job of, I'm not going to say anything, because I think anybody who says anything would be classless and foolish but- and not a very good manager. <laughs> I would never say that, of course. I would take the high road. Like, he does a very good job of not actually saying it, but saying it simultaneously. So, so, so see if it's it's Pep or Ten Hag or Conte, whatever, I think, fair game. But I don't know. There's something about it being Ryan yeah. Mason. He's like a puppy dog. Come on, leave him it's, out of this. Graham, it's so- Son-in-law, the right analogy, because ha- as a person with two daughters, son-in-law is not the person I'm gonna. I, d- I don't know. I'm gonna feel some animosity there. I think rather than is is he like Greg from Succession? Is that is that the, uh, the role? He is? <laughs> it's right, makes it Greg's from Succession. <laughs> Ryan the egg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe there's he's something little, in that. He's a little Greglet. He's a little Greglet walking around there. <laughs> is he Buster Bluth? Is that what we're saying? Is Ryan Mason Buster Bluth? Just like, come on, guys. Bless. We him. don't need to pick up. I mean, to his credit, I think he is trying to probably instill some fight into a Spurs team that are feeling dejected, and also probably trying to deflect when you blame the officials and a red card and say you were the better team, you're always going to be the one who gets the focus of the conversation, focus of the coverage, focus of the opposition manager's responses. And in that way, there probably is a little bit of def- deflecting blame from a team that yeah. gave away three goals needlessly and then gave away the final goal, uh, courtesy of uh, an errant back pass. I felt so bad for Lucas Mora, uh, even if I didn't feel that bad for him. I don't think time. Spurs fans yeah. felt very yeah. bad for yeah, him. No. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, credit to Harry Kane, who walked him up, like walked him off the pitch and tried to, I think, pick him up. That's that's sort of, I think, leadership in the moment because I think there's lots of players that would have been like, that guy can walk by himself. I am tired and angry. Taylor, on the subject of Harry Kane, I've got a question for you. 
let's imagine you are... He's going to be great at Bayern. Is that the question? It's getting there. It's getting towards that. But yeah, let's imagine for a second you are Harry Kane, and I hope one day you will be Harry Kane, Taylor. I really hope that for you. All right. But... (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question, isn't it? I can never understand a word that man says. One day your brother is your agent who has one client, yet has an office and sits at his desk every day. And has Um, never had a transfer. (laughs) Exactly. Well, will he soon? I suppose my question, Taylor, is Mm. if you are Harry Kane, why would you stay with this team, which is clearly clearly needs a rebuild, clearly is a way away from winning something, it appears at this point, when you've got a finite amount of time in your career left to achieve big things, if you're Harry Kane, surely now is the jumping off point. I mean, narrative? I feel like that's it. Like, one club man, he's one of our own, he stays there through thick and thin, that's how you become a club legend. At the same time, uh, you can become a legend by winning silverware. And, and I, do, I do think that this is probably the point where if you are Spurs, you can still sell them on and make some money, and then you can reinvest that with the new manager coming in. Um, I don't know where that will be. I said Bayern Munich earlier. Uh, I feel like Manchester United is an equally li- likely uh, destination for him, and I'm not sure if that's the best signing for him or for Manchester United, but I think he's better than what they would have, and I think it does give him more of an opportunity to consistently... Uh, challenge for the title right now, maybe, theoretically. I'm not sure if anybody's catching Man City anytime soon, but I think he's uh, surrounded by more better talent more consistently, and that's not a shot at Spurs. It's more of a shot at Spurs' board for some of the decisions they've made and the the transfers they've gone for or not gone for. So I think it's a, it's an odd one that I like seeing him at Tottenham. I like, yeah. like the one-club man story. But at the same time, there's that graphic of like players who've led the league this season or like in their career. And I think Harry Kane has been like on top of the table for seven days in the Premier League, something like that. Uh, <laughs> a player of his talent, his ability, his effort, uh, I think deserves an, a, an opportunity to try something different to see if he can win some silverware. Uh, since Spurs fans have had their ear, uh, fingers in their ears, Arsenal fans can do it now. It reminds me of Robin Van Persie at Arsenal and then leaving for the one season or two seasons to go win silverware with Manchester United. I think it's it's something similar of searching for greener pastures that in this case yeah. might actually be greener. I, I totally see that comparison. The thing with Van Persie, though, is he went to the team that you knew. There was almost a guarantee if you went to Ferguson's Manchester United, you yeah. were going to yeah. win a title. And that team for Harry Kane have got a Norwegian go-bot now. They've filled the position. So it's kind of difficult to know where Kane goes to. Bayern there is Munich. something symbolic about how he scored. He still scored in the two defeats to Newcastle and Liverpool, which have been... Very, very damaging to Tottenham in different ways. But amid all the chaos, he still manages to keep his numbers ticking over. But without being reductive about it, what what do those goals achieve? Like all those goals that he scored in the Premier League, if goals are designed to win games and you win games to win titles and he scored more goals than anyone else or he's going to over the course of his career and he hasn't won anything, there is almost like an existential question for Harry Kane there. So... I can see I can us- I can usually see both sides of the argument with Harry Kane about whether he should leave Spurs or not but right now it feels like Spurs are at the beginning of a rebuild he's 29 years old maybe this is the right time for him to jump off Yeah I mean the the only possible argument that that is around for why he would stay at Spurs is is not a sporting one it's a personal one of how much he likes being at the club how much it means to him and and none of these things we can actually quantify right these are all intangibles You look at the sporting side and I'm I'm sorry Tottenham folks if you're trying to win something, you're not really going to want to be at this club. There are other clubs. The Premier League is becoming you know, wider and wider. The gap is widening between clubs like Man City and it seems like the rest of the league right now. Newcastle might be the only club. You know, maybe Chelsea and, and maybe you know one or two others. But like, there's a, a massive divide at this point. And Tottenham are really not at the forefront of clubs trying to bridge that divide. 
So yeah, on, on a sporting side, I don't really think you can make an argument for why Tottenham makes sense if you're trying to win trophies. Indeed. All right. Well, to summarize this game, though, Graham, two teams who are flawed defensively made for a brilliant concoction of soccer here, didn't it? It was just a oh, really... Yeah. Re- I think it's been a really brilliant season. We'll even get onto that later. But this game was just wonderful entertainment despite because of the flaws, basically. Yeah, it was a bizarre match which highlighted those vulnerabilities of both teams that you talk about. Liverpool were very Liverpool, given from given what we've seen from them this season, and and Tottenham were more Tottenham than they have ever been before. Um, and it was incredibly incredibly entertaining. I had a lot of fun watching this. Chaos is always what I want in in a football match. And we should probably talk a little bit more about how good Liverpool were in this mm-hmm. game. Um, certainly from an attacking point of view, I had kind of forgotten just how electric Luis Diaz can be and how he can contort his body into all sorts of shapes to get the ball into the net, as he did for his goal in this game. How he met that cross on the volley and sent it into the near post is incredible. I certainly couldn't do that, and I can't think of many players who would be able to do that. Jota as well, since he's come back from injury, there was a lot of talk about his goal drought. That is certainly over now. He's given them a different dimension in terms of... I always think Jota takes up really good positions in the box. He's a little bit more of a poacher than Liverpool have. He's good in the air. He's an aerial threat, which is something Liverpool will need when Firmino leaves at the end of the season. And I think on the defensive side of the ball as well, Diaz and Jota, they were close to double figures for winning possession back in the attacking third in this game. So while the intensity still isn't there in midfield on the defensive side of the ball, I think Diaz and Jota make a big difference in pressing and counter-pressing from the front. And... um, I know Liverpool completely lost control of the match in the second half, but I, I do I personally don't think they're too far away from being competitive again next season. It feels like Klopp is working through some things. He's road testing some things, and certainly with that attack with Gakpo and Darwin Nunes and Salah and uh, Luis Diaz, he can work with a lot there. There's a lot of talent. All right, let's take a quick break and congratulate Liverpool for going fifth above Tottenham in the Premier League rankings at the moment and no fan ticket reimbursements necessary for Daniel Levy. Congratulations to him as well. Uh, When we come back, more Premier League and more from the weekend. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. 
Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system wherever and whatever you're selling Shopify's got you covered Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic your AI powered all-star and I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's go to Craven Cottage. Fulham 1, Manchester City 2. Manchester City overtaking Arsenal as we expected. Arsenal playing uh, tomorrow, as we recall, Tuesday against Chelsea. No action over the weekend. So City now one point ahead with a game in hand. Haaland and Alvarez with the goals here. A real stunner from um, Alvarez as well to win this one. Taylor, this was uh, Haaland's 50th goal in all competitions he got here from the penalty spot here. Tim Ream fracturing his uh, arm in this one now for the rest of the season as well. That's a big boo for Fulham and for the US Monitor. Yes, uh, U.S. Monitor, U.S. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I am sad that that means we probably won't see Tim Ream uh as much as we would have this summer, maybe we'll end up seeing him in the Gold Cup instead of the Nations League. Who knows? Uh, but also that frees up opportunities for younger center backs to come through. So that's good. I think Fulham also only losing by one and scoring against Manchester City is kind of a confidence boost, given how good City have been. Exemplified by Erling Haaland setting all the records, scoring all the goals. It's not even like newsworthy at this point. It's just sort of like, oh yeah, he scored... Another one. He scored five more. He scored six more. Who knows? He scores every weekend. It's just become inevitable. It was Kareem Benzema scores on a weekend. Now it's Erling Haaland. I don't know, Taylor. I know you watch uh, Match of the Day occasionally, mm-hmm. but this season with Erling Haaland and Alan Shearer in the, sh- in the studio has just been Mark Chapman or whoever's presenting Gary Lineker uh, breaking uh, to Alan Shearer yeah. every single weekend that Erling Haaland <laughs> has broken one of his records. And while it started off as a bit of a joke, it feels like Alan Shearer, the competitor yep. that he is, is starting to simmer in his own rage yeah. uh, and kind of just wants this season to be over and Erling Haaland to sign for Real Madrid already. What I'm hearing, like we keep seeing all the rumors, I think Wrexham are leaking them of like, maybe they're in for Gareth Bale. Maybe they're going to go for Zlatan. I say Alan Shearer, come back to her. Uh, when they get promoted all the way up, Alan Shearer can score some more goals and really just kind of uh, further compete with Erling Haaland that way. I do love Graham in Match of the Day when they don't say it overtly and they just mention that a new record has been broken and then they let it sit for two seconds until he connects it and then gets even more annoyed that now the yeah. camera is on him for the reaction of being bested by a youngster. Well, there was one at the weekend there he didn't even know he had the record for. So Erling Haaland has now scored the most goals in a, in a month in a, for any Premier League player. And that was previously held by Alan Shearer. And he, he, he didn't even know that was a thing. But he didn't oh, seem nice too to guided have. about that one. Yeah. 
Indeed. <laughs> uh, listener, if you do want to catch up with BBC Match of the Day, you can go to iPlayer uh, and check it out. And you just tick the box that says, yes, I have a license. Uh, you can borrow grams. It's all good. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you need a VPN as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's a nice Sunday morning thing to do. Watch the little MLS wrap up and then some match of the day and then carry on with your day. Very nice. Man United won. Aston Villa nil. Bruno with his 100th career goal in this one. Uh, Taylor, what did mm-hmm. we make of this one? Uh, Man United cementing that Champions League place nicely. Did they? I didn't know they'd actually secured it. Now I feel better. Uh, I mean, I, they, the, the cement's wet. It's not okay, dry. Okay. There's, Gotta let there's it dry. feet marks in it. Someone yeah. is writing their name in it, but it's getting there. It's dry. <laughs> I guess that's good. Uh, I was very pleasantly surprised. I was pretty confident this was going to be a loss. In the same way that I did not think the Spurs game was going to be a win, and it wasn't. I think Villa have been so strong across the board. I think they have looked the more energized, the more enthusiastic, interested, whatever it would be, team. I think they've just been perfecting their style, but then also adding new elements to it. And for Manchester United, we've talked about this previously, it feels like this is the season sort of needing to end before they start losing even more bodies. They've had tons of injuries. Uh, I think there's a pretty clear gap in Eric Ten Hag's estimations between the first 11, maybe the first few players off the bench, and the rest of the squad that he has at his disposable. Disposable, whoops. Uh, So in this game... It felt for all the world like one that Villa could end up uh, snaking one earlier, getting one late. Uh, and so I was I was pleasantly surprised with the way Manchester United set up and the way they came out. And then with Bruno Fernandes uh, doing Bruno Fernandes things, which is scoring and being very good on the ball, but then also wasteful on occasion and then annoying his teammates and annoying opposition fans. I am sort of baffled by Bruno, and I would love to hear what Joe or Graham think of him because... Uh, my, my working theory, I rewrote and rewrote this in the document like 15 different ways. But basically, I can't tell if he needs a little bit more Roy Kent, as in he needs to be more just like boot the ball out of bounds, don't turn it over with one minute remaining in extra time and give Villa one more chance to attack. Or if he needs to be less Roy Kent, because he seems to get pretty angry pretty quickly with his teammates and with uh, opposition supporters. And I think there's also an element of you that. You can just say Roy Kane, Taylor, if you'd like. Uh, well, see, the thing with Roy Keane is that I think of, of him more so for the like just abject violence and the <laughs> willingness to end a player's career. And I don't think I want that from Bruno. Okay. Uh, Roy Kent, though, we, we know how he does revenge at 4 a.m. when the person feels like they're most safe. Uh, that is terrific stuff by Ted Lasso's writing. And maybe that's what Bruno needs is he just shows up in Jaden Sancho's room at 4 a.m. to get his revenge for the back talk that occurred in this game. I think I think in general, Taylor, Manchester United right now maybe just need a bit more Roy Kent. I'm not sure if it's Bruno Fernandez in particular. The example you gave about you know him him knowing to clear the ball and not give Villa another chance. I wouldn't say that's like a Roy Kent thing. That just feels maybe more like a, a game common intelligence sense thing. thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Bruno, by and large, does have a lot of common sense. Like he's he's a very very good soccer player. He's been the best chance creator in the Premier League by a couple of different metrics this year. Like he is an exceptional player. I think Manchester United as a whole, though, just need to raise their level. And, and Bruno is probably one of the players that knows that. But there's just not quite enough talent in this team for them to really get to where I would imagine he wants them to be, where this club wants to be. So I don't, I don't know if, if he really needs to dial that up a ton. Or maybe he does and the rest of the group needs to do it as well. But really, I'm not sure that that mentality is exactly what this group is missing. For me, you know, they're maybe missing another year under Ten Hag to work on some tactical stuff. And yeah. another couple of transfer windows. All that to say, though, like this was a good performance by Manchester United. I thought this was one of the better games I've seen them play over the last month or so. They were 
They were in control from the start, and they had the better chances. They pressed well, I think, out of sort of a 4-1, 4-1 shape of the midfield flexible as they were trying to mark Villa's midfielders out of the game. And then they built up well, I thought, with some varied positioning from Luke Shaw, who was back at center back in this game for stretches. But we also saw uh, Malasia play a little bit more inside at times, mm-hmm. and he and Shaw would even change positions. So we saw some fun tactical stuff. But in general, like Manchester United purposely tried to target Villa's back line. Marcus Rashford playing up top as the number nine in this game made a ton of runs in behind the back line. And the goal that Bruno scores come from Rashford, comes from Rashford getting in behind, having the ball, taking a shot from a tough angle. Yeah, but it ricochets over to Bruno Fernandez after the goalkeeper parries at that direction, and he scores, and it's 1-0. Like Manchester United speed, their attacking play, and, and, and sort of how purposeful they looked both with and without the ball, I thought pretty clearly separated them in this game. So I guess, Taylor, is a long-winded answer to your question. Manchester United just need whatever this version of Bruno is <laughs> with like 8% yeah. more common sense. Yeah, this match for me um, showcased my favorite Bruno Fernandez, where he is get he's making late runs into the box. Mm-hmm. He's he's pretty much as much of an attacker as as he is a midfielder. And I, I remember reading an Opta analyst piece about Fernandez when Ronaldo was still at Manchester United, and it basically illustrated how when Ronaldo was in the team, Fernandez was having to be the supplier. Um, when he's actually most effective at being the one who has the goal-scoring action. Mm-hmm. And th- this piece did a much better job of articulating it, this than, than I am right now. But you could see quite clearly in the numbers just how much more effective Fernandez was when Ronaldo was out of the team, when that dynamic was changed. And at the moment, because Manchester United don't have a, a, a goal-scoring number nine, I know Rashford's had a good season, but he's been playing out wide, Fernandez has had to chip in and get forward and make those late runs into the box and recently he had been playing in a deeper role with Casemiro and Eriksen out and I know he'd received some praise for how he'd played in that position he does have that tactical versatility that I actually think Ten Hag has instilled into him this season I hadn't really seen that from him before this season but this is my favorite Bruno Fernandes when he's crashing the box he's getting in there for goal scoring opportunities and he's getting on the end of chances and winning games like he did in this one look forward to next week when we hate him again then I think he's I think he's just an emotional guy. I think and I think he's a hard on the sleeve kind of guy and I think when things are going well that can be good. I mean his celebration I guess cuz he was getting booed by Villa fans was to just if people didn't see it he scores the goal he goes to the corner flag and in front of all of them he just kind of stands there and looks at them. No emotion, just definitely a like staring them down sort of thing. But then, as I alluded to, there's also moments where like Jaden Sancho tells him to calm down because Bruno is so angry that he hasn't gotten a ball. And I think that volatility, such as it is, can be problematic if things aren't going well. I think that is... I feel like Bruno is like, if things are going well, if, if United are winning, he that energy and that sort of demand for perfection manifests as good results. When things take a different turn, I think that can come across as being sullen or being overly emotional or being too angry at his teammates. And that's where I think sometimes it can get a little bit murkier in terms of him being the captain, in terms of him being the leader. But I agree with, I think, Graham, that we've seen Ten Hag get new things out of him and add new things to his game and incorporate him pretty well. So overall, I think a, a pretty important player. Obvious, It's pretty obvious given that Eric Ten Hag uh, in the last couple of weeks has consistently referred to him as the captain, the hardworking captain, the leader of this team. Harry Maguire yeah. is still technically yeah, the captain. Yeah, but I think, is he captain? Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, Harry Maguire yeah. feels good, particularly because <laughs> at the moment he's been completely patched out of this team entirely with Lindelof mm-hmm. and Shaw as the second choice centre-back pairing. Harry Maguire now fifth choice at the club he is captain of. I can't imagine he's been feeling very good about Ten Hag calling Fernandez the captain as well. <laughs> 
Uh, Lindelof um, basically saving a couple of points mm-hmm. for Man United with that heady goal line clearance as well. Yeah. Pretty incredible, wasn't it? And that's one of the most damning things about Harry Maguire. Sorry to make this a discussion about Harry Maguire when he's not even playing, but people like Victor Lindelof, when he is out of the team, looks like a much better, more confident, assertive player when he's not having to play alongside Harry Maguire. Even David De Gea, I think with Maguire there, is a bag of nerves. We saw that in the in the Sevilla game in the, in, the, in the Europa League, where both of them are at fault. So yeah, at this point, it feels like the last week or so has just nailed the final nail, I guess, in, 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 in the, the coffin of Harry Maguire's My United career. There's no coming back from this, surely. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, let's go around. Tell that to Phil Jones. <laughs> Is he still there? Is he still on, on the contract? He's still there. Oh, man. <laughs> that's, in, I, I, that's incredible. I, I'm, I'm not even mad at that. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> Crystal Palace 4, West Ham 3. This one was a game, when it came around on Saturday, I was like, there's no, no way I'm watching that. It's going to be nil-nil. It's going to be boring. Had it on in the background anyway. I was like cleaning up my guitar or something. And then the goals kept coming in. Seven goal thriller. This one was fantastic. Palace hitting the 40 point mark with this one, overtaking Chelsea into 11th place. Uh, weird one, Graham. I don't know if you noticed this. I tweeted about it. The kickoff was delayed for this game because of the issue with turnstiles at Selhurst Park. Before the game on NBC, they showed BT Sports coverage. I don't know what, I never saw what the problem was with NBC's coverage, but it was BT Sport with um, Peter Crouch uh, and all yeah. that lot on, on, the, on the field. It was quite. Odd to see, because I've never seen that before. Did they not just put Ted Lasso on? Because I think the cast of Ted Lasso was at this game. So they that, were. They could have done that. Yeah, and they didn't. Opportunity missed. Anyway, uh, that was that one. Uh, Newcastle 3, Southampton 1. Newcastle remaining in third with that one. Southampton remaining very much in 20th with that one as well. Brentford with a 2-1 win over Nottingham Forest. A 94th minute winner for Brentford. A bit of a heartbreaker for Forest, who've been on a good turn lately, of course. And Brighton, six, Wolverhampton Wanderers, nil. Brighton going up to eighth with this one. Bouncing back, Graham, very nicely from losing their FA Cup semi-final and the midweek loss to the aforementioned Nottingham Forest. Yeah, hugely impressive by Brighton, who rotated their team for this game and and were even better, which is is sort of the way it works for them. Their best players get sold or injured and they just get better. Um, And I think you could see in this performance that the Zerbi is already thinking about evolving this team again for next season and some of the players who could be key figures like uh and CISO who was once again excellent in this game he was he created a couple of assists for goals uh Undav as well a player who hasn't really covered himself in glory this season but looked very good in this game I'm also hopeful that Billy Gilmore will be one of those players who flourishes next season because he was excellent in this match man of the match in fact he got that award and Deserbe said after the match that he has made a mistake by not giving Gilmore more game time this season I agree Roberto I agree anyway <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's good to see him back he's so good in that controlling position in the middle of the pitch and the Billy Gilmore era is back on track Indeed. Uh, let's quickly flip our attention to Serie A. Napoli knew they would win the title on Sunday if they won their game and Lazio didn't. Lazio did their part for this one, losing 3-1 the Inter Milan on Saturday. They actually moved back Napoli's kickoff from Saturday yeah. to Sunday as well. As soon as, as soon as they did that, you knew that they were not going <laughs> to win it on the day. They got spooked, didn't they, basically? They got spooked by moving the game by 24 hours. It was done to avoid crowd trouble. There were stories of Napoli fans... Oh, that's my Siri going off. Um, There's stories of Napoli fans wanting to light flares on Vesuvius, which I think if you light fire and things on volcanoes, it's not good, I think. I'm not a geographer. 
yeah, I had no, questions that, about that. What they were going to do? Yeah, I, I, I of heard course you they, do. They, <laughs> I I read that they had closed off access to whatever like national park Vesuvius is in. So that was the plan. They were going to light flares from Vesuvius to make it look like it was all, erupting. All, all I'm yeah. hearing is that you guys don't like to have fun. That's that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> I don't it's understand. Right. I mean, first of all, accurate reading, Joe. Second of all, uh, it reminds me of those stories like during the pandemic when like scientists are about to unfreeze this like two million year old virus. We don't know what's going to happen. It's like, no, 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 no. We've learned from Jurassic Park. It's it's should and not could. Please. It's should and not could. Don't set off fireworks on a volcano. Things could take a turn is all I'm saying. There was also that thing that I put in our Slack chat of the Napoli fans holding a funeral for the other Serie A teams. <laughs> which is just no chill at all. It's so aggressive. It's so aggressive. Uh, but I think, yeah, the, the flares on Vesuvius, the, 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 the lads in Pompeii just going, all right, calm it down. We've been here before. Let's not uh, let's not set this one off. But uh, no no worries there. A 1-1 draw with Salernitana in this one. An equaliser coming six minutes from time. But as I said earlier, Graham, it, it seemed like party was on anyway in Napoli. Like the, yeah. the, I've never heard a stadium so silent when an away team has scored, to be fair. But then several minutes later, it was like, we're still going to win. You you could sense the the tension in the way that Napoli played the majority of the match until Oliveira put them ahead with the the header from the Raspadori cross, and at that point things kind of relaxed a little bit. Kavaratskalia had a couple of opportunities. I think Osman had a a header as well that might have uh, might have gone in. But Salonatana are on this excellent run of just one defeat in ten games. And so they continue to be a threat. And then the equalizer that you mentioned, Ryan, from uh, Billy Dia was sensational. Sort of the sort of the goal you would expect from Karatskalia. Okay, scored from the right side, the opposite side that he plays on. But just a magnificent, magnificent goal. And yes, Napoli will get the job done. The Scudetto is theirs and they can they can clinch it this week. But it is a shame that they couldn't win it in their own city. Um I don't think those fans will really care though. That city is ready to explode and as we as we've already spoken about, I've seen so many weird ways that they're getting ready to celebrate the Scudetto win. Yeah, indeed. It's Thursday. They go to Udinese. And as you say, Graham, it is technically the furthest they could possibly go. Udin is basically up on the Slovenian border. Um, and Napoli's obviously uh, in Naples down in the south. There's going to be a lot of mopeds on the way up to that city. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see that video of Van Guisa filming yeah. out the back of the, of, of the bus on the way back from the Juventus game? Yeah. That's yeah. going to be the motorway all the way back from Udin if yeah. they win it. And those those tunnels they were going through, like they some of those tunnels are like four miles long, and I can imagine, yeah. I, anyway, they're uh, impressive stuff. Uh, they can win it on Thursday, Udinese. They can actually win on Wednesday as well if results go their way on Wednesday. As I say, they should all get round Jamie Vardy's house just to make sure uh, for that one. Uh, another interesting game in Serie A. I wanted to draw attention to. Unless you want to talk about the Inter game, Graham, did you catch that one? Yeah, I did catch that one. I made a point on Sunday of watching both of these games because it felt like appointment viewing. Um, Lazio, excuse me, very good in the first half. Felipe Anderson scored the opener and then the game completely changed when Lautaro Martinez came off the bench for Inter. All of a sudden, there were the the, the signs of the old Lautaro-Lukaku partnership and Lukaku contributed a a couple of assists. So if Inter can get those two playing well like that and, and over the course of the rest of the season that's a game changer for them with obviously a Champions League semi-final coming up and also a Coppa Italia final as well 
Yes, indeed. Coppa Italia final taking place at the Stadio Olimpico, as did Roma's 1-1 draw with Milan this weekend. Tammy Abraham with the 94th minute. Looked to have scored the winner, almost did the Richarlison and whipped the shirt off, uh, only for Alexis Salamakers to get the 97th minute equaliser. Don't let the ending fool you. This game was bad, as, to, as I thought it would be. Uh, a draw for these two. Let's take a quick break. When we come back... Oh, Dortmund. <laughs> Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Uh, Friday Night Lights in Bochum. Uh, it looked like Dortmund had the opportunity to take four point, a four-point lead in the Bundesliga title race over Bayern Munich. All they had to do was beat 17th-placed Bochum. How did it go, Taylor? Did it? Is that what happened? <laughs> Didn't go well. Did not go well. They did pull one back almost immediately. Bochum go up 1-0. Dortmund equalized like a minute or two later. And then it stays that way for the rest of the game. We should note, this is a derby match. This is a rivalry. They don't like each other. You could see that at times. It was pretty physical. It got physical earlier in the season when they played each other in the DFB-Pokal. Uh, and in this game, I think Dortmund will feel pretty hard done by in the end. I think their XG was like 3.5 uh, to Bochum's, I think, like 0.79 or something. So I think for this to finish 1-1 to shows you that Dortmund just didn't take their chances particularly well. Some of that uh, is Bochum's goalkeeper. Joe, I know you've got thoughts on him. Manuel uh, but for, but for me, But for me... Bless you. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you, Ron. Finally, someone with manners around here. Golly. <laughs> uh, for me and Joe, I, I, I welcome your thoughts on this because, uh, like... This was a strange game. I felt like I paid really good attention to it, and at the end of the game still had very limited thoughts on what had happened. Other than that, it seemed like Dortmund's approach was Adeyemi sort of nominally on the left wing, uh, Daniel Malin on the right, Sebastian Allaire up top, Julian Brandt sort of fluctuating between a number 10 and a number 8 role, but a lot of the attacks seemed to be coming down the channels, and it was aggressive attacking play, and then like big crosses into the box or big driven cutbacks, and... Some of those came close, some of those created shooting opportunities, but a lot of them were cut out by by Bochum's defense, who increasingly, as the game goes on, dropped in, put numbers behind the ball, or put numbers in the middle, and just cleared everything, or got to it first, or challenged for it, so it was never that clear-cut of an opportunity, and it felt to me like Dortmund sort of just got predictable and kept going with that. I think they lacked a little bit of creativity through the center of midfield to try different things. I feel like Marco Royce uh, could have made a difference in this one. I think you're right about all that stuff, Taylor. What I will say is, you know, I think Dorman played well in this game, and Ryman really did have a, mm-hmm. a massive performance. Six saves, saved 1.9 expected goals based off of sort of where the ball was going on frame. Definitely did Bayern Munich a favor. Like, he was massive in this game, and if he has even a, an above average instead of a fantastic day, Dorman have three points, and they are top of the table. So that, that's one part. I think you're right, though, to point out some of how Dortmund attack and, and how they are limited at times centrally. You can start with the player at the top of their shape in Sebastian Haller. He's a guy that wants to sort of slip in behind, especially wants to operate in the box. That's where he was at his best with Ajax. That's where he was at his best in the Premier League with West Ham. That's what he does. He's not going to give you really much of any creativity further downfield. Julian Brandt is, at this point in his career, it seems to me much more of, a, of an 8 or a 10, like you mentioned, but not a true chance creator. Jude Bellingham, who was playing t- to his right for stretches of this game, is, I think, an elite central midfielder. But I think that's as an eight and not as a pure chance creator. Like, he doesn't do that stuff. He's not going to be the guy that, that creates clear-cut chance after clear-cut chance. And so then, you know, you think about teams that have thrived without true central creators. I think about Liverpool, although Roberto Firmino, you could argue, is one of those players. But peak Liverpool had three workers in central midfield. Like, it's, it's James Milner or Henderson or Wijnaldum or whoever it is. 
Like they're working hard. And the reason why they can get away with not having like a, a through ball threading Mezzadozo type in that space is because they have the wingers who are elite players. And I think Daniel Malin is, is a good player. I liked him when he came to Dortmund at first from the Eredivisie. I think Adeyemi is a very good player as well. I'm not sure that they are in the top 1% of wingers in the world right now. And so between Bochum's goalkeeper having just an absolutely world-class 90-plus minutes and you know maybe some of that predictability coming into play in Bochum, knowing, okay, we can clear these balls with this angle, we need to be in these spots, you do start to get a feel for it after a while. Long story short, Dortmund's still very unfortunate, which is just the story of yeah. Borussia Dortmund for the last decade plus. But, you know, I guess credit to Bochum and, and maybe Dortmund look at this game as, as a reason why they need to diversify their roster just a little bit. There was also one very unfortunate refereeing decision in this game where Adeyemi, in my opinion, is completely cleaned out in the box mm -hmm. and for whatever reason, a penalty isn't awarded. And Edin Terzic had a lot to say about that after the match. He thought there were um, two stonewall penalties. The other one is, is, is a legitimate claim, but I can see maybe why the referee hasn't given it. But the Adeyemi one, I thought, was frankly scandalous. It's one of the worst decisions I've seen this season. I, w I was watching this game, uh, also half watching Blackpool Millwall happening at the same time, because that's how rock and roll my Friday nights are. Um, but sort of from the 70th minute onwards, the amount of pressure Dortmund putting on, I was like, they're gonna, they're gonna nail this. This, this is gonna be fine. I actually, I backed. I actually had money on Dortmund to win and both teams to score, so I was very happy with the way things were going. I couldn't believe they didn't finish it off though, and with all those late chances and offside winners being chalked off and whatnot. Yeah, frustrating. Uh that was pretty frustrating for them. I was pretty surprised by that. Still, the most surprising thing, how is Lutz Fennenstiel still doing commentary for games? The man is the di sporting director, the director of an MLS team. And just like, I I'm assuming it's because he would just be watching these games anyway. So why not make some money to watch these games anyway? But it blows my mind that that man is pulling double duty the way he is. It is incredible they could do that and they can have a section in the stadium where you can bring your cat along as well. It's, it's so much going on at St. Louis. Very admirable, I'd say. Do you think David Tepper would be able to call Bundesliga games as adeptly as Lutz Fannenstiel? I know he'd charge you $400 to bring your cat to the game. I know that much. Uh, the cat needs its own seat. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Anywho, let's move swiftly on from there for Bayern Munich to Hertha Berlin nil. Bayern, of course, doing what we thought they'd do, Joe. Point yep. above with point clear with 62 points. <sighs> Gnabry in command with the goals in this one. Yeah, and not just that they are back on top of the table, but how they did it as well. Like They were totally dominant in this game, Bayern Munich. This is, regardless of who the manager is, whether it's Tuchel or Nagelsmann or Flick or you know, whoever, this is the Bayern Munich that we have come to expect in the same last decade or so that Dortmund have been in the mud a bit, or at least that have been having these kinds of performances that they had this weekend. Like, this is the juxtaposition between Dortmund and Bayern that we're used to seeing. Two no win, two really nice balls over the top from Joshua Kimmich that, that get the assists on, on both of these goals. Bayern Munich in general in total control, 26 shots to Hertha's two shots. Like, th this was much less of a soccer game and much more of a training exercise for Bayern Munich. They were really good. Uh, the clear highlight for this, Joe, I don't know if you saw this, Archie Rintut, who does the pitch side yeah. interviews for ESPN, he's wearing like a 90s kind of shell suit jacket or something. He always wears like quite uh, cool clothes on the sidelines. And they, he put up a clip on, on Twitter of sort of before they went live to K Murray in the studio and during it. And he's sort of doing some small talk. Um, Thomas Tuchel compliments Archie Rintut's jacket. Oh, well, that, that's nice. I've got one of those, actually. And then when they go live on air, Archie Rintut's saying, oh, 
uh, Thomas Tuchel just telling me that he's got one of these jackets. And Tuchel just goes, I would never say something like that. Completely, <laughs> completely sells him on it. It was fantastic from Tuchel. I admire him a lot more after <laughs> he did awesome. that. Very Archie's funny. interviews are consistently very good. They so, are. Uh, in the really good. He's, yeah, he's, he's, he's very good at what he does, indeed. Uh, let's go to Spain. Barcelona 4, Betis 0. 15-year-old winger Laminia Mal becoming Barcelona's youngest ever player. Uh, they were move 11 points clear as they were previously with this one, uh, Graham. Yeah, it makes me sick that Barcelona are now playing 15-year-olds in their team. Uh, I believe he is the same age as Rihanna's uh, song Umbrella which, again, just makes me feel completely sick. What were you doing at 15 years old? I certainly wasn't playing for Barcelona. (laughs) As the scoreline would suggest, this was much more like it from Barcelona, who haven't been in great form recently. Obviously, the red card to Edgar Gonzalez in the first half certainly didn't help Betis, but there was the intensity and speed to Barca's game that hasn't been there in other performances. Um, Andreas Christensen started his first match since March, and we haven't really spoken much about him this season, but he he is probably a part of Barcelona's first team, their strongest 11 at the moment, and they have missed him when he's been out through injury, partly because he's not Marcus Alonso or Eric Garcia, but also because he has the recovery pace that Barcelona need with their high line. He can play out from the back, and, and he's also good in the air, as he showed for the opening goal against Betis. And I thought generally for Barcelona, the balance of the team was there with the, the midfield three of Busquets, De Jong and Pedri, Gavi on the left, Alex Baldi getting forward from left back, left back excuse me, and then Rafinha on the right. And when Barcelona get this specific team on the pitch, they're very good. Things click for them. It's when Javi has to rotate or make changes or Pedri's injured or Gavi's injured or Christensen's injured or whoever, that's when they get kind of knocked out of their stride. So I think making sure that 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 doesn't happen next season and they have a bit more usable depth, because Barcelona do have depth. It's just similar to Manchester United with Den Haag, where Javi doesn't feel he can use a lot of that depth and the chemistry kind of gets messed up a little bit. So that has to be an objective for next season. They need to improve in that regard. Uh, Real Madrid won another of their pre-Champions League warm-up games. Real Madrid 4, Almeria 2. Karim Benzema with the hat-trick, right? Karim Benzema with the hat-trick. Weirdly, it was Vinicius and Rodrigo as the wingers either either side of Benzema that caught my eye. Having those two either side of Karim Benzema just isn't fair at all. So Benzema, he does score a 42-minute hat-trick in this game. But some of the play from Vinicius, and in, in particular Rodrigo, was just ridiculous. The assist, the Rodrigo assist for the second goal was absolutely out of this world. He he stole a man's soul without even thinking about it. I can't even describe properly what he did, but he sort of flicked it around the back of the, the defender and then ran round the other side to retrieve it. it. It was like a magic trick and then he squares it for the finish. And then the goal that Rodrigo scored as well was an absolute laser. So Vinicius, he gets a lot of attention because of, of, of how good he is and he was very good in this game as well. But Rodrigo goes under the radar a little bit with what he does, and he is a sensational player in his own right. And Atletico Madrid just two points behind Real Madrid in third place with uh, five goals scored at Real Valladolid. 5-2 to Madrid this one. So this was one of the most entertaining matches of uh, the weekend. Atleti, they looked to be cruising at 3-0 up in the first half. They were they were more attack-minded than I have seen from them this season. Molina is starting to look like the right-back that Atletico Madrid need. He put in an excellent cross, um, I think it was onto Morata's head for the third goal. 
Griezmann was excellent once again at pulling the strings and being the creator with two assists. Then the momentum completely swung and Valladolid pulled it back to 3-2. Kyle Lahren scored a penalty and it became really, really open and it was a bit of a basketball game towards the end. Ultimately, that then allowed Atleti to, to pick them off on the break and Memphis Depay scored this amazing solo goal where he basically skinned the entire defence and then went back for seconds to finish it. You know that way where you beat your defender and then you go back for a second time? Hmm. He did that before sticking it into the back of the net. So I'm really enjoying watching Atleti at the moment, which isn't something I, I, I was saying in the first half of the season. It feels like Simeone has definitely kind of secured his own future. There was a lot of question marks about him. Luis Enrique was reported to be on his way in. That's probably not going to happen now. And actually, I'm kind of excited, kind of excited to see if Atletico Madrid can carry this into next season because they've been very good recently. Graham, just to clarify, uh, no, I am not familiar with doing that. Yes, I am familiar with an attacker doing that to me. Thank you for bringing up painful <laughs> memories of getting double magged in a game. I appreciate it. Yeah, that was the validly defender. He, his, stole was, his soul excuse me, was stolen in that moment as well. And that's official. That's how it works. La Liga enforces that. <laughs> Very nice. Joe Lowry, take us to MLS Town. Which games caught your eye this weekend? Well, Taylor put this one in the dock first. Mm. It was you, Taylor, wasn't it? Did I? Um, was that you, me? You, I think you should take this one. Go ahead. Ryan, did Charlotte play this weekend? No, no, there's no games in DC this weekend. Why? <laughs> Three no win for DC United. A Christian Mateke bicycle that oh, yeah. was a pure bicycle. You don't often see it. I don't think it was even ankle. I don't think it was shin. I think he caught it perfectly. Uh, you have youngsters scoring goals. You have Charlotte looking sad. It's everything you want in an MLS game. Hey, come on now. Yeah. <laughs> if, if we want one more stat. That sort of illustrates how DC United are playing, at least in the final third. Oh, fine. May, may actually talk about the game. Fine, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I liked what you did. I'm, I, this is all I've got to add. Venteke won 15 aerial duels, according to Opta, in this game on Saturday, which is the most by any player in an MLS game over the last decade. So Venteke really has wow. been everything that DC United wanted. He has been a proper target striker. They have some capable ball players around him, especially the number eights and Click and O'Brien. Like they're they're playing some real soccer, and I'm still not very high on DC United's direction right now. But they are capable of putting in a a solid performance, and they very much did that over the weekend. Another club that did that, sticking in, in sort of the southeastern portion of the United States, Nashville beat Atlanta United three one in the opening game slot on Saturday. We had an early game, which is really nice. It was ten thirty for me, I think one thirty for folks on the East Coast, and then we got a nice. I think Alex Abnos tweeted this out. I think we got a nice four hour, five hour break until the next games, which makes a, a lot of sense. But we saw Nashville come out and look really good. They started in sort of a 4-4-2 diamond. Then they flattened out pretty quickly into a, a flat 4-4-2 that we've come to expect from them. But they were sharp. They were quick in transition. Atlanta United, for their part, maybe we'll talk about this a bit more on tomorrow's show when we've got Goss to join us. But you know their midfield personnel hasn't looked up to snuff. They have elite talent in the back line. They've got elite talent in the attacking line, especially in Thiago Almada. But the midfield, especially Rosetta, really struggled in this game. Made it difficult for Atlanta to link their attacks together. Almada had to drop really deep, and they weren't getting enough movement in behind the back line. So Nashville had a really good game. Atlanta had a not-so-good game. And in the last uh, MLS note that I'll go for on this show is, we talked about last week, Ezra Hendrickson, in his quote about eggs and potatoes. You know, you put one in water, and one gets harder and one gets softer. What do we want to be? Well, Chicago were up 1-0 heading into the 89th minute of this game against the New York Red Bulls, who have been not so good at scoring goals this year. And Corey Burke scores in the 89th minute to equalize 1-1. And it is now confirmed that Chicago are potatoes, which I feel like actually fits because I think there's a pretty big Polish population in, in Chicago. So maybe they were always going to get softer when it comes to water. That's, that's just how it goes, I guess. 
Very nice. More on Major League Soccer, as Joe says, when Big Davey Gus joins the pod on Tuesday. Uh, heading up the Any Other Business section, I'd like to add in PSG 1, Lorient 3. Uh, Akraf Hikini red card in this one. I guess his mum has to pay the fine. Is that how it works? Yes, that, sure. that is indeed how it yeah. works because she has all of his property for people yeah. who missed that story. <laughs> that is insanity. Did yeah. you see how Mbappe scored this goal? Yes. Would you like to tell us about it, Taylor? It was I, I've of- only seen the clip and I feel like I am missing context But because it, it looks for all the world like there has been a stoppage in play. Mm-hmm. The goalkeeper is rolling the ball out to then like an offside call. He's rolling it out and then he's going to take the kick. But I guess it's just a live play. He catches the ball, rolls it out to kick it long, and Kylian Mbappe just takes the ball and scores. Is that pretty much it? Like it's. Yeah. I, I don't know what else happened. I don't know what the goalkeeper was thinking. But man, was that a weird goal to watch! It was pure sportsmanship slash uh, taking an opportunity. However, you want to read that one, Tete. Uh, but what was stuff. the reason? Like, was well, that the goalkeeper the... thought the ball was dead and it wasn't? Okay. Is the okay. TLDR right? And just uh, Mbappe just. Got to use them ears, buddy. Yeah. Got to use them ears. Play it in a whistle. Listening ears. Listening yep. ears. Indeed. Uh, Graham, uh, in Glasgow, we had another old firm. This was the Scottish Cup semi-final. Uh, Celtic with a 1-0 win. They will face Inverness. Cowley Thistle in the final. Yeah, the, the 400th old firm derby of the season. Yep. Uh, by the way, the 401st is in two weeks' time. So there's another one coming before the end of the season. <laughs> um, it ended with Celtic just about edging past Rangers into the Scottish Cup final, as you say. Ryan, Celtic didn't actually play that well, but CCV was man of the match, best player on the pitch. Um, he was probably the difference between the two teams in that Celtic held firm at the back. Rangers did have some opportunities, certainly territorial pressure, but it didn't really amount to much. While Rangers had a complete lapse of concentration for uh, Jota's winner, kind of similar to the Mbappe one, in a sense, in principle, I guess, in that Rangers thought a foul was going to be called in, in the box. It wasn't called that everyone stopped. Celtic didn't stop. They crossed the ball into the middle. Felipe Jota heads in at the back post. Um, so, yeah, just Celtic not being terrible defensively was enough for them to win this game. Rangers, they just need the end of the season. Michael Beale is already talking about a rebuild. It is very much needed. I'm not really sure... If Malik Tillman's going to be part of that rebuild, about a month ago it seemed like Rangers were going to try and make that deal permanent. Now it's kind of swung back the other way where he's been a bit flaky. We haven't really seen much from him in recent weeks, so it wouldn't surprise me if he has a new club this summer. Over on the West Coast in NWSL, we had Portland Thorns 3, Angel City 3. Joe, Bella Bixby, the goalkeeper, with a back-heeled 97th minute winner. Bella Bixby, by the way, is a great name. Just want to say. So good. So good. What a name to have be the second goalkeeper, I believe, to ever score a goal in the NWSL. This was, I think, my favorite moment of the entire soccer weekend. Portland Mm -hmm. down 2-3 to Angel City in Portland. Packed Providence Park, by all accounts. 97th minute, goalkeeper Bella Bixby comes forward on a corner kick. The corner kick's taken. It's an outswinger. Uh, Angel City's goalkeeper comes out, can't claim it. The ball falls to Bixby, who then back heels it in. That's 3-3, game over with, again, just an absolutely insane ending. If you haven't seen this clip, go and, and watch it. You'll find it very, very easily on Twitter or on YouTube or, or wherever you watch soccer highlights. That was a phenomenal moment. And in general, this game was part of a great week, uh, sort of a separate storyline, but was part of a great week for young players in the NWSL especially uh, U.S.-eligible young players. So Olivia Moultrie, who's a player that I think even folks who sort of just casually watch the NWSL will be familiar with. 17-year-old, was a part of Portland's title-winning team last year, had to do some legal battles with the league to be able to play. Uh, And she had an unreal assist to Morgan Weaver in this game for Portland's second goal. 
driving from the right side then bending the ball into sort of the, the path of her teammate in behind the back line. A really classy assist. Like one of the, the best passes I've seen in a minute. Alyssa Thompson, also in this game, scored a crazy Sophia Smith-esque solo goal. Like both of those players, Moultrie 17, Thompson's 18, played very well and had some bright moments. Jaden Shaw, 18-year-old uh, U.S. attacker, scored a proper striker goal for the, San Jose, uh, for, the, for the San Diego Wave. Excuse me, I don't know what happened there. For the San Diego Wave against the Orlando Pride. And then finally, we had Melanie Barcenas, who's just 15 years old. We talked about Barcelona having a new youngest player. Barcenas is just 15 years old. She became the youngest player in NWSL history to step on the field. When she made her debut for the Wave on Saturday, she played 20 minutes off the bench against Orlando. Pretty much a banner weekend for the NWSL when it comes to young, talented, exciting attacking players. Very nice indeed. One final highlight of the weekend I wanted to bring to our attention. The KNVB Cup, the Dutch Cup. Uh, PSV won it on penalties. It was IX won, PSV won after normal time. 3-2 win on penalties for PSV. This one taking place in Rotterdam. Ajax's stadium this weekend was being used by Metallica, presumably completely ruining their field for whatever games they have remaining. But here we are. Um, my favorite quote was uh, PSV's Joey Veerman after winning the cup. His quote, they just gave me a can of 0% beer, very poorly organized. Like that. <laughs> Shameful indeed. Some, some very matter of fact Dutchness did anyone, there. Did anyone see um, Van Nostelroy's dancing in the dressing room after this game? I did not. Was it good? He's got some moves. He's got some moves, yeah. Roy, I think it must um, be something that Dutch managers do because didn't Eric Ten Hag do something similar with um, Anthony and Lissandro Martinez and then they replicated it when Manchester United won whatever that trophy that they won is called now. Um, so I don't know, is, is it an Eredivisie kind of tradition for managers to do a dance? I quite like it. Uh, Rude van Nistelrooy is an awful lot of fun as a person. Uh, I once did a thing with him uh, for Bleacher Report where I did Pictionary, where he'd draw Pictionary things and I had to guess what they were. This was on Facebook Live back when that was a thing. And as we went live to however many people were watching, um, Rude van Nistelrooy was uh, tickling me and stepping on my foot trying to put me off. And it was wow. in like a hilarious way. He's, he, wow. he was very, very funny. I wonder if we ever tried to tickle Fergie and how that went for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, do we think he's going to be like a a big big manager on the managerial scene at some point? I mean, obviously he is. He just won a cup. Potentially. I mean, I don't really know enough about his PSV team. I saw uh, quite a bit of them in the first half of the season when Gakpo was there and they played Rangers in the Champions League. And I have to admit, I haven't seen a great deal of them since then. But it seems like he's doing a reasonable job at PSV. So, wouldn't rule it out. Let's not rule it out. Uh, weekend, consider yourself reviewed. Graham, thank you for not ruling that out, and thank you for joining us on this one. Thank you, Ryan Billy. Taylor Rockwell, pleasure as always. Pleasure was mine. Joe Lowry, uh, you were manspreading, and now your knee's gone down. Is everything okay? Yeah, no, it's all good. Just getting ready for uh, for the next phase of the day. You know, some phases call for some <laughs> things, some phases call for other things, right? Well, we're going to talk about Star Wars and the Patriots. So yeah, we are. Like, maybe, maybe you're limbering up for that. Get so, that knee back up. We're going to talk Star Wars in the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show if you want to join us there. But for now, listener, thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back soon on the feed. But for now, bye. <laughs>